You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Last week, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese attended the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting in Cook Islands, where he and the Prime Minister of Tuvalu announced a major new agreement, the Australia-Tuvalu-Philippili Union. David Rowe speaks to the ABC's Stephen Jedgetts, who was on the ground reporting from the PIF meeting. They discuss the significance of the agreement, its strategic importance to competition with Beijing, how the deal was done, and whether it can be replicated with other Pacific Island nations. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm David Rowe. I'm talking today with the ABC's foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts, about Australia's new security agreement with the Pacific nation of Tuvalu. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, David. Really appreciate it. Stephen, for those of you who don't know, which will be very few of our listeners, is one of the outstanding foreign affairs reporters here in Australia, also a very astute Pacific watcher in particular and has been uh, for some years, I certainly learn as much from Stephen and his Twitter feed as well as his reporting as I do uh, from anywhere else. So last week, for a bit of context, during the Pacific Islands Forum in the Cook Islands, Anthony Albanese unveiled the Felipili Union with his Tuvalu counterpart, Cassia Natano. It's a pretty far-reaching agreement and it's certainly been talked up by the Australian government. It means Australia would receive climate refugees from Tuvalu and has committed to climate adaptation support. And on the other hand, it would appear to give each country veto rights over security agreements signed with third-party nations, which is clearly very significant with respect to security deals with China. So let's kick off with a general assessment, Stephen. What's your take? How big a deal is it? Look, I think it's a big deal. I mean, the government's calling it the biggest deal in the Pacific since, you know, PNG independence. It's difficult to say whether that's true, but you could definitely make that case pretty plausibly. Now, the reason it's a big deal is simple. Australia's never really done anything quite like this before. The model that we've got here is in some ways quite unique, at least for Australia. Now, these sort of arrangements in the broad are not completely new beasts in the Pacific. It's worth remembering New Zealand already has realm states, including Niue uh, and the Cook Islands. And on top of that, of course, you've got the compact states, uh, the uh, the compact of free association states, uh, who have got very close links with the United States, where essentially the United States agrees to pay substantial amounts of money to support services uh, to those countries, as well as giving citizens of those compact countries the right to, to live and work in the United States in return for basically having control of those countries' um, military relationships, and in particular, the capacity to use those uh, countries as, as military bases. So it's not a completely unfamiliar creature in the Pacific as a whole, but Australia's never done anything like this before. There has never really um, been anything quite like this in the Australian firmament, if you like. So the fact that Australia has decided to take this step uh, is not hugely surprising. It's been flagged, you know. Uh, we've, we can read in foreign policy white papers a lot of talk about uh, you know integration of Australia in the Pacific. Uh, we've seen a large number of commentators and some heavyweights in the Australian system, from Kevin Rudd to John Blaxland, talking about this prospect of a compact between Australia and Pacific Island countries. But what's happened is that now Australia has actually taken the plunge and signed for the first time an agreement like this with a Pacific Island state, the the nation of Tuvalu. And it sets potentially a really interesting precedent, one that perhaps could be replicated with a small number of other states. And also, I think, just as significantly pushes Australia down the path towards further integration with other Pacific Island nations, including those that may not want agreements quite like this one with Australia, 
but who have already signalled that they're open to much closer regional integration with Australia and Australian institutions. So it's a big deal. Yeah. I want to come back in a moment to how much wider this can be applied, but but first just on Tuvalu and how it sort of came about. I mean, what does it say to you that Tuvalu came to Australia, you know, partner of choice, all that, and the the particular offers that Australia has put on the table to Tuvalu, sort of meeting what its primary security concerns are. What, what does it say to you just about the, the way this has actually been done between the two governments? Well, a couple of things. The first thing is that this was done with a pretty extraordinary level of secrecy. Now, Tuvalu's Prime Minister has talked about an eminent persons group that did apparently some form of consultation in Tuvalu. I mean, my contacts in Tuvalu are not particularly deep. We've made quite a few phone calls. We have still not been able to find anyone who was consulted as part of this process. If there was a form of consultation, it doesn't seem to have been put to people in the context of, a, of, a, of an imminent security uh, pact that was about to be signed. So it was conducted with a fair deal of secrecy, certainly in Australia, and it looks like, to some extent at least, in Tuvalu as well. What else does it say about the, the way that this was approached? I mean, the other thing you could say is that it's not entirely clear exactly how much it really was Tuvalu simply approaching Australia and Australia alone. Again, working out the precise shape of this is difficult, but it seems like Tuvalu made at least early exploratory approaches to at least one other country. So I don't think it's quite as cut and dried as Tuvalu choosing Australia from the outset as its partner of choice and then zeroing in on that and getting it done. I think it's actually a slightly more complex and nuanced picture. I think Tuvalu because of its extraordinary vulnerability to climate change and other uh, exogenous shocks, was on the hunt for someone, a a nation, to offer a a deal like this. It was after a pathway to residency. Australia, it seems, was probably at or near the top of its list, but I don't think it's true to say that Tuvalu approached Australia and Australia alone. I think they were looking for for potentially numerous safe harbours. Do you have concerns about the durability of it, given the apparent lack of consultation, whether there's, you know, a broader political support for it? In it's a really good question. I don't have a good answer for it yet because I simply don't have a good enough grasp yet of the domestic politics around this in Tuvalu. Hopefully I can rectify that over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> but one thing, there are a few things to bear in mind. One, Tuvalu goes to the polls in January next year. I think they've only got, best as I can tell, another three weeks or so before they enter into a caretaker period. So if they want to get this ratified internally before then, it's going to be an awful scramble. If they don't, then it's going to lie in the lap of the next government. Now, I don't know exactly who's going to be in the next government. I've spoken to one source in Tuvalu uh, who keeps a very close eye on politics without naming names. They say that at least one of the major contenders shaping up next year as a potential prime minister would quite likely be a bit more sceptical. But whether that means that uh, this might face the sort of headwinds that, for example, the Australia-Vanuatu Security Pact has faced is difficult to say. I I simply don't have a, a clear steer on that yet. I mean, it's undeniable that there's going to be a large appetite, at least amongst a proportion of people in Tuvalu, for this migration pathway. And so I think my assumption off the basis of that is that there will be at least a level of popular support for this, which is probably going to make it a fairly popular idea at the election. But I simply don't have a good enough grasp of the subtleties around domestic politics in Tuvalu 
to make a prediction on that one way or another. We'll simply have to wait and see what happens next year. Okay. Sticking for a moment with the Australia-Tuvalu bilateral approach here, this is a, unequivocally a security pact, obviously, but it does, I mean, it puts climate at the heart. It recognises that climate is Tuvalu's number one concern. I mean, obviously, showing my age, I wrote a story, I think, about 20 years ago about how Tuvalu was at risk of uh, going underwater. We've known that this was a long-term risk and threat to such a low-lying uh, country. Recognising that this is the region's number one security concern. Is it a smart long-term strategic approach by Australia to come at climate at the heart of the region's security concerns and just balancing that with broader geopolitical uh, concerns that Australia has about China's growing footprint? Look, Australian officials clearly believe that they've struck a pretty neat balance here uh, by simultaneously acknowledging uh, climate change as the most pressing security concern for Tuvalu and opening up a, a visa pathway for its residents, 280 people a year, they argue, making a concrete contribution towards dealing with some of the anxiety that we find in Tuvalu about its very existence and what its people will do in the event that it does go almost entirely underwater. At the same time, they believe that the concession that Tuvalu has made to Australia, essentially a right of veto over its security arrangements, is one that, whilst substantial, is not a huge ask of Tuvalu, simply because, let's be honest, the main country that Australia is eyeing off anxiously here, China, does not at the moment have diplomatic relations with uh, Tuvalu. Tuvalu is one of four remaining Taiwanese allies course, yeah. in the Pacific, something that has been remarked upon in the reporting so far, but is is worth emphasising. So, you know, realistically, Australia is going to most likely exercise that veto power in regard to one country alone, and that is China at the moment. China, whilst knocking on the door relentlessly in Tuvalu, is not a player officially inside Tuvalu. So getting in now, perhaps before China potentially emerges you know, as a force in Tuvalu, is strategically smart. Now, there's a lot that Australia has to walk around very carefully here, in particular you know, uh, accusations of neocolonialism, which have already been levelled at uh, Australia by academics in Tuvalu, some regional commentators, not yet, at least in public, by any Pacific Island countries, as far as I can tell, but it's an argument that may well find a, a sympathetic hearing. You see some Tuvalu academics, for example, arguing that if Australia was serious about its partnership with Tuvalu, they would simply have opened up that immigration pathway without demanding any sort of security guarantees in return. So the balancing act that Australia has uh, has managed to string together here, it feels like it's one that both plays to its security interests and its climate obligations. The challenge for Australian officials and politicians is making that case not just in Tuvalu, but around the broader Pacific as well. Okay. Let's just talk about how this can be replicated um, further across the region. Let's start with what we know already. You've reported yourself that the Kiribati president has downplayed the prospects of a similar treaty with his country. Across the board, has it been received regionally? So far, as I mentioned, no Pacific Island countries have responded in a hostile manner. We've had, as far as I've seen so far, the Cook Islands, Solomon Islands, we've seen Kiribati, all come out and say with varying levels of enthusiasm that this is basically a good idea, congratulating Australia and uh, Tuvalu for striking this agreement. Still, we, ha we haven't heard from plenty of other Pacific Island countries, but I think given it was announced as a, given it was a joint announcement and given it was framed with climate at the heart of it, I think that most would be reluctant to criticise it, even if they do have perhaps quiet anxieties about uh, the security element of it, 
uh, or about Australia as a as a ne- neo-colonial force in the region. So so far, the the reception in the Pacific has been pretty good, pretty positive. It's also been good outside the Pacific. So far, all the countries you'd expect to be in favour have basically praised it, including New Zealand, uh, Taiwan, interestingly, coming out quite hard, quite early, saying that they welcomed it, and the United States. So the reception so far has been, you know, pretty good. It'll be interesting to see exactly what all Pacific Island nations have to say. Certainly the day after it was announced at the Pacific Islands Forum, I had some off-the-record chats with a few Pacific officials who were a little bit more cautious about it. They weren't hostile to it, but they wanted a bit of time to digest it uh, and its full implications. At least some did have some anxieties about the precedent that it could set. At least some were a bit cynical about the security guarantees that Australia uh, has extracted as part of this deal. So I'm not sure there'll be a wave of enthusiasm for this necessarily in the Pacific, but my best guess is that there's unlikely to be any direct criticism from any Pacific Island countries. If they have worries or anxieties, they'll probably be expressing them privately rather than publicly. Okay. So projecting forward, if Australia could, for instance, get the diplomacy right around some of these relationships, what is at least the scope for replicating this agreement more broadly? And, and could we end up with some sort of, you know, almost region-wide network of, um, of agreements that kind of link together into a proper kind of grouping? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think the first thing to say is that if you're looking for countries where this could be replicated very quickly and relatively easily, there's one country that stands out, and that's Nauru, a country that, of course, already has very deep links to Australia that go back a number of decades. Australian officials aren't pointing to individual countries, but uh, I think it's safe to assume that Nauru would be the next cab off the rank, simply because, like Tuvalu, it's small. It's got a a population in the thousands, a few thousand. So uh, Nauru is the obvious candidate. One, existing strong institutional links to Australia, albeit within a sometimes troubled past in terms of Australia's uh, immigration detention program there. Two, a political elite with very close links to Australia already, many educated in Australia. Three, facing very serious climate challenges as a small and low-lying nation. Four, not yet bound to any of the other um, larger players in the region. So Nauru's probably the next one off the rank, if there is going to be the next another one off the rank. After that, some analysts are pointing to Kiribati as a, another possibility, um, simply because it also doesn't have institutionalised links to any one country in the same way that the compact or the realm countries do. It's larger, it's got a, a far larger population than both Nauru and Tuvalu, but it's still not huge. It could still easily be uh, absorbed within Australia's immigration program within a, you know, a, in a phased manner quite easily over a period of time. And three, it's also facing some really profoundly existential problems. I mean, it is another very low-lying nation with many of its key population centres very, very, very close to the waterline. So it would face an urgent, it will face an urgent problem in a similar way to Tuvalu. But we don't know yet whether Kiribati is willing to, to, to contemplate that. As you mentioned, we, I had a quick chat with the president of Kiribati at Rarotonga Market, actually, where I bumped into him during right. the Pacific Islands Forum. What were you buying? What was I you was buying? buying presents for my kids. I'm not sure what uh, <laughs> President Mama was after, but uh, he had the un- unfortunate experience of running into me and my iPhone <laughs> he instead. He, he didn't look delighted, but he was good enough to give me a few moments of his time. And look, it was only a brief exchange, uh, but uh, as you said, he, he when I asked him straight out, would, would Kiribati be willing to contemplate something different, something similar? He basically said, 
maybe, but we have our own way of doing things, which I, I think was a polite way for him to say it's not a top priority for him at the moment. But I do wonder whether uh, my, my suspicion is that Australia will still be looking at Kiribati quite intently, um, whether that's with President Mama or whoever you know happens to be the next uh, leader of Kiribati down the track, simply for those you know for those sort of broader structural reasons that I that I laid out earlier. And then you've got the realm states and the uh, compact states as well. So yes. presumably, given their existing relationships, they are not uh, obvious candidates for similar kind of agreements for the moment. I, I can't see how either the realm uh, countries uh, with close institutional links already to New Zealand or the compact states with close links um, to the United States of America could ever contemplate an agreement like this with Australia simply because they've got such similar pacts with other major powers already. It would be very difficult to see how they could strike agreements like that. So then you might turn, just purely for the sake of argument, to other slightly smaller uh, countries in the region that don't have realm or compact relations, so perhaps Tonga and Samoa. I mean, it's not impossible that Australia might look to strike an agreement perhaps in a similar vein with Tonga and Samoa, but both those countries already have very strong links to New Zealand, uh, even though it's not in any way like the uh, the Cook's sort of uh, realm arrangements, including very strong migration pathways and people-to-people links. My suspicion, and it's a suspicion only, I haven't got to the point of having this discussion yet with anyone, um, is that if Australia were to approach either Tonga or Samoa, it would want to very much loop New Zealand in on that. And any approach I think would have to be done almost simultaneously with New Zealand as a, as a tripartite sort of agreement. And then when you move beyond that, you get to countries like Vanuatu, which much like Kiribati has guarded its independence and its non-aligned status quite jealously over time. Again, not impossible. They might not be interested in something similar like this in the future, but politically, my guess would be that it's a harder sell. And then, of course, you come to the larger Melanesian countries, uh, Solomon Islands and PNG, which I don't think anyone is talking about in, in terms of an agreement like this. Both those states, I think, would simply be too large for Australia to feel confident in opening up migration pathways of a scale necessary to bring in large numbers of people. I guess the next question is, does it send any kind of signal to the rest of the region that a positive future might lie more safely with Australia, New Zealand, the United States, those democratic allies who are offering a particular way forward for the region as opposed to, say, you know, drifting into China's orbit. I realise it's a very great powersy kind of way of looking at it, which will probably infuriate some people, but so be it. Is there a possibility that it is simply sending a signal that encourages thinking in that direction? I think so, yeah. I think Australia is signalling in both word and indeed now that it does want greater integration with the Pacific, that it's open to greater integration. Now, we have to remember here, uh, you know, Pacific Island nations have also been telling Australia that they want greater integration. Now, they aren't so much talking about exchanging security guarantees or you know, giving Australia veto rights in return for immigration pathways. If you look at what the Deputy Prime Minister of Fiji or the Prime Minister of Samoa have talked about, they've talked about a uh, much less conditional pathway with Australia essentially opening up an EU-style arrangement with uh, at least smaller Pacific Island states with freedom of movement and freedom of goods travel throughout that region. So the region has to some extent already been signalling that it's open to greater integration. The real rub point, I suspect, will be what does Australia want to extract in return from that? And in the case of Tuvalu, 
they've extracted quite a bit. They've extracted essentially a security guarantee. Would Australia want to extract similar security guarantees from countries that are larger, for example, like Fiji, like Samoa, in return for that regional integration, in return for opening up not just pathways, but potentially opening up new um, new opportunities for Australian institutions to embed themselves more deeply inside the Pacific Island countries. I don't know what the answer is to that. Clearly and understandably, Pacific Island nations will want as much integration as possible without trading off any of their sovereignty. Australian policymakers will basically have to decide how much of that trade-off they're willing to make, how much they're willing to offer, and what they are going to try and extract in return. That's going to be a fascinating and delicate political dance which I think will play out over the coming years. Uh, And it is going to be an enormously consequential one. Not to reduce this to pure geopolitics, because there's an awful more, a lot more going on here, but- It's Aspie. It is Aspie. So I hope that you'll forgive me. If there's one thing that China is not going to offer Pacific Island nations, it's a pathway to residency. That's one thing that is not on the table. And so Australia, I think, recognising that it has that inbuilt advantage, recognising the fact that it already has substantial diaspora populations here, recognising the fact that there's much, much more simpatico culturally between Australia and these countries than there is with China, it's not surprising in a sense to see Australia leaning into this strategy a little bit more energetically. But exactly what they demand and what they're willing to give and how the Pacific responds to that individually and collectively, that's the rub. (laughs) That's what's going to play out over the next few years. It's going to be fascinating. Well, that's a fantastic way of wrapping up. Stephen, I think you've demonstrated to our listeners the wonderful combination of having both an analytical brain and also being an on-the-ground reporter. There aren't too many people who will simply run into um, Pacific leaders there at the market. So you've shown having those twin strengths really does help. So thanks so much. That was fascinating. It was really good analysis and we appreciate you coming on. Great. Thanks, David. A pleasure to be with you. Shifting focus to Southeast Asia now, we're pleased to bring you the final interview from our Disruption and Deterrence series, which was recorded on the sidelines of ASPE's major defence conference earlier this year. Ewan Graham speaks with Ignacio Madriaga, Undersecretary for Strategic Assessment and Planning in the Philippines Department of National Defence. They discuss the challenges the Philippines faces from China in the South China Sea through four AIs. Artificial islands, alternate interpretation of the rules-based order, aggressive interaction, and the ability to influence. Hello, I'm Ewan Graham. I'm a senior analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And joining me on the podcast this afternoon, straight from our annual conference, is Undersecretary Ignacio Madriaga from the Philippines, who's been uh, with us and on a panel. Ignacio, welcome to the ASPI podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very delighted to be here. Uh, Though this is my first time to be in a podcast, but uh, I'm thrilled and excited to, to be a part of this podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you've given us the honour of being the exclusive first in that case. You were on a, a panel earlier discussing regional relationships in, in the context of, uh, of Aust- Australia's defence policy. We might come to that bilateral aspect a little bit later on, but I thought it would be good to get some general framing because you made some, I think, very well thought through remarks about the current situation that the Philippines is is facing in the South China Sea 
and it would be useful to get your perspective as a, a senior policy practitioner on the state of play uh, in the South China Sea. And I was particularly taken by your formulation of the four AIs. So maybe you could run us through that, Ignacio. Yes, thank you. Basically, uh, when I came here, I had my senior research assistant to prepare an opening remark. But yesterday, I was so engrossed listening to how disruptive technology is AI or how AI technology is uh, leading the disruption that is affecting deterrence. Then from there, based on the title, Disruption and Deterrence, I, I revised my, the format of my presentation to make it more uh, interesting. So like what I've said during the panel, the West Philippine Sea is, uh, basically covers the exclusive economic zone of the Philippines as entitled by the UNCLOS and, and the 2016 PCA Arbitral Award. So just to end, but on a daily basis, we are facing disruption by basically uh, AI that uh, impact on deterrence that is being conducted by all of the countries that believe in, in the rules-based international order. And to, to summarize the, the poor AIs that are uh, giving us challenges on a day-to-day -day basis uh, in our West Philippine Sea, the, the, the AI is not basically the artificial intelligence, but different kind of AI. The, the first AI is the artificial islands. Uh, basically, uh, the world uh, has forgotten that China has reclaimed island and built military bases uh, in those islands. And those military bases are sizable and they accommodate strategic bombers. They house missile that when used, they can actually cover a majority of the maritime maritime passages you know, towards from the Indian Ocean to the South China Sea to the Pacific. So those islands basically changes the security situation in the whole South China Sea. The second AI is alternate interpretation of the rules-based international order that includes uh, coming out with a map. Firstly, it was 11 dash line, then it became nine, and now the latest one is 10 that basically claimed the whole of the South China Sea. So it's an, an upfront or a degradation of the rules-based international order as we know it. And the third AI is aggressive interaction. And this is characterized by the Chinese Coast Guard pointing military-grade laser to our Coast Guard's vessels, small Coast Guard vessels, civilian, civilian fishing vessel, even our, they are shadowing our Philippine Navy vessel. So all of this basically violates regulations on collision regulations and all other maritime law that should govern behavior in, in, in at sea and the fourth ai is their ability to influence so they are trying to dominate the narratives in the social media using using artificial intelligence to create divisive narratives that divides basically the political the cultural and the regional narratives in the Philippines. And one of the major divisive narrative is that it is the U.S. that is causing the tension in the South China Sea without ever saying that it is China that first occupied islands, then militarized them. And 
like I've said, uh, all of these things, the hegemonic and the expansionist policy of China is an existential threat to the rules-based international order. And basically, I also mentioned uh, during the panel that how do we respond to all of this activity? And the response should be an all-inclusive response. And one of the audience basically proposed a different uh, AI, which is alliance intervention. So basically, I I guess I've uh, piqued the curiosity of the audience. Uh, and this is just a point of view, of really not from an academe, but from a man with an infantry background for 32 years. So <laughs> that's the way I see it. So the way I presented it. Wonderful. I think it's a great and memorable framing and I think one that's uh, easily digestible even for a, uh, an audience that's not uh, immersed in the detail of what's happening in the, in the Philippines. A couple of things stand out for me from that. One, uh, the aggressive interaction formula. I wonder if you could just run us through a little bit about what's been happening recently at Second Thomas Shoal, which has been in the headlines where the Philippines has been uh, trying to resupply a uh, an outlying military garrison in the old landing ship, the Sierra Madre, which is still a commissioned uh, Philippines warship. That would be useful to get your your take on the current state of play there. Yeah, thank you. The second Tomasol, or what we call Ayungin, is a low tide elevation. So meaning it is submerged underwater most of the time. And under the arbitral ruling, it is ours. There's no question about it. So China has no legal claim into it. So basically, we did a military vessel, the BRP Sierra Madre, because we have very limited option in order to respond to the Chinese taking over mischief reap and started rebuilding it. So it is our way of responding or stopping the, the expansionist move of China in, in that part. So what we do when we resupply or reprovision our personnel aboard the BRP Sierra Madre is a sovereign activity of the country because we exercise sovereignty, sovereign rights and jurisdiction in that in Ayungin Shoal. And what the Chinese are doing is basically interfering in so many ways, sometimes really aggressive. The latest one, I, I think the world knows, is uh, they pointed and fired water cannon, a high-velocity water cannon to our supply ship, which is basically a, a, a dinghy or what we call a banka, an outrigger, because these are the plot-bottom civilian vessel commissioned by the Navy so that they can get alongside because if you use a bigger ship, they would run aground. So it's a small ship. It's a, it's a made of wood. And then this huge Coast Guard, Chinese Coast Guard vessel not only maneuvered very close, very dangerous, and tried to block uh, all of these civilian vessels and then basically fired a high-velocity water cannon towards it. And some of those ships uh, basically went back to Palawan. But because of the skills in maneuvering of some of the of this wooden vessel, they were able to re- continue and resupply the, the personnel at the BRP Sierra Madre. And this is a consistent pattern on, on the Chinese Coast Guard. And the latest one basically revealed that the nature of the Chinese militia a vessel, they are part of Chinese Coast Guard. They are actually assisting and the, the Chinese Coast Guard in basically blocking and 
stopping the resupply mission, which, uh, which is within our right to do. On that fifth AI that you suggested of um, from the audience of Alliance Intervention, it occurs to me that maybe we, we're already seeing the beginnings of that because the incident at the second Thomas Shoal is, is not purely a bilateral encounter between China and the Philippines. Of course, this is the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, as you have said. But there is also a linkage to the US-Philippines alliance through this and the language of the articles which refer to public vessels of the Philippines. That also gets to, I think, the importance of the distinction between a civilian supply vessel and also the military garrison of the BRP Sierra Madre itself. Maybe if if you could just talk in slightly more general terms about what are the prospects for a thickening out of the armed forces of the Philippines' presence in the... uh, features that uh, that are occupied within the West Philippine Sea. Are there plans to to reinforce the other areas that the Philippines currently occupies? And uh, indeed, what are the future plans for Ayungin or, or the Second Thomas Shoal itself? Well, I can answer it in a general concept. Now, we will not be leaving Ayungin. So all of the possibilities to make our presence permanent in that, in that location are all in the table. Within the West Philippine Sea, basically the Philippines occupies nine nine islands, all high tide elevation. And in all of those islands, we have presence and we have also planned to enhance our presence and to improve the living conditions of our, of our troops, provide them with source of potable water and try to make all of this location multi-use not only for the military but for scientific research for environmental protection so basically that is the plan of uh, of the philippines to on all these occupied features that would include ayungin the philippines has also been gaining attention not just from the united states but a variety of other regional partners including the other claimant states within asean but more broadly than that Japan and Australia have both been ratcheting up their security and defense relations with Manila. That's obviously a good problem to have from uh, the Philippines' perspective, but it must create also certain capacity issues and the difficulty of having to manage multiple sets of partners who all want to upgrade their relations at the same time. As a an official who's involved in that process, how how do you make those decisions about what to prioritize and, and can you ensure that the potential demand is, is met? Yeah, of course, the, when it comes to the United States, there had been, they have been a reliable partner. Our, our defense had been anchored on the Mutual Defense Treaty signed in 1951. And we are very encouraged and heartened by the commitment of the American that they say that the commitment to the Philippines is ironclad. And uh, we call each other, we are family, we are allies, we are friends. So that is already a given. But when it comes to other countries, I think, of course, there are differences in laws and culture. But basically what binds the Philippines with other countries is that principles of our legal claims, basically its own clause and arbitral ruling, I think that made it easy for the Philippines to engage all of this country because, like you said, the word like-minded had been bandied around because there is 
truth to that. We all believe in keeping the Indo-Pacific free, open, and prosperous. We believe that the global common should be for everyone to benefit from, and not one country should be too unilaterally change change that status quo. So countries that are that have stakes, high stakes in keeping the Indo-Pacific open, basically are establishing relation with the Philippines, and we all welcome all of that. Basically, it's not really difficult because we believe in one in one concept and one principle. Uh, recently, we conducted a bilateral sale with with the U.S. and now Australia. We recently signed a strategic partnership with them. We recently concluded a, a large exercise with the ADF, and now uh, initial talks are ongoing for bilateral sale with the Royal Australian Navy within our territorial sea. Japan had been helping us improve our domain awareness. They've been providing us with radars, with naval aircraft. South Korea has uh, been our partner since, I think, the 1950s. We have established very close kinship with them because we fought together in the Korean War. EU, as an organization, have established relationship with us. We are, and in the individual European countries have starting to establish relation with us. Germany is, we would be establishing a defense attache post in Germany. So all of these countries believe that the Philippines has legal rights in the West Philippines. And since they have a stake in the Indo-Pacific regions, it's a, it's a natural course of action to, to partner with the Philippines, I guess. And all that is manageable from a Philippines perspective. There's no such thing as too much attention at once. Of course, it would require different levels of skills to, to negotiate with all of these countries. They have different interests. But the important thing is we have converged our national interest towards the keeping the Indo-Pacific open. And although there's challenge, but we are able to manage it effectively. And we are sending a clear message to China that the Philippines may be militarily very little ability, but we have friends that are ready to help us. And that also seems to be reflected in the the hectic travel schedule of the president himself, who spent a lot of time outside of the Philippines conducting this diplomacy at at the highest level. Ignacio, we're in Australia, so I'd like to focus a little bit more on the relationship, which you already mentioned in some detail that the relationship between the Philippines and Australia defense forces has thickened considerably. It's something that I've written about in the past. And indeed, the Australian Prime Minister was recently in in Manila, as was the uh, Defence Minister and Deputy Prime Minister too. So clearly there are high-level signals from Canberra that the Philippines is rising up the agenda among its Southeast Asian partners. But from a Philippines perspective, what is it that you think that Australia can add to these other partners? We in the Philippines uh, actually view Australia as a, as a middle power that can actually alter the security architecture in the Indo-Pacific region towards improving the, the, the current situation. And Australia has really stepped up with their, it can be seen with their strategic review and their plan to expand the ADF, the AUKUS submarine. And we in the Philippines, we, we welcome all of those developments. Uh, Australia and the Philippines basically are archipelagic countries, and uh, we we derive our our economic activities, our economic benefits from from the sea, from the South China Sea, and 
we have to keep the global commons open for for all of us and i think that is where the interest of the philippines and australia converges and we have a very strong foundation of people to people relationships since i think the 1970 here in the australia i think we have a sizable diaspora of the filipino and if i can proudly say that i'm uh, a recipient of uh, australian education because of the idp when i was in the military i was given a scholarship uh, a post grad so i stayed here in australia so basically the the relationship now the relation with australia has a very solid foundation in the past now uh, so it's only logical that we elevate the relationship into a strategic level and underpinning that at the defense level there is a visiting forces agreement and a bilateral logistics agreement there aren't many other countries with which the philippines has that so it seems clear that it is a priority from manila's perspective and i think the current government's uh, indications here from the prime minister's visit on down reciprocate that under secretary madriaga it's been a pleasure talking to you today we hope to welcome you back to australia again in future and indeed for aspi staff to visit you in manila thank you very much and welcome for this opportunity to have this discussion and podcast like i've said this is my first time and uh, it's a uh, really feel exciting and thrilling and once again thank you very much for having me well it's a pleasure you're a natural and a safe trip home thank you that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money we'll be back with another episode soon thanks for listening